Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural, local, and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. Uh, hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Brian. Before I forget, because I'm prone to forget these kind of things, let me say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is the final show of 2020. And as excited as we are about 2020 coming to an end, we're probably all a little bit worried about 2021. One of the things that I have focused on quite a bit through many of the conversations that I've had on this program so far has been the question of uh, how does race, uh, ethnicity, and culture, how do these things impact uh, church and mission? How does it impact how we mobilize? How does it impact how we organize our teams, how functional we are? Uh, how we fellowship, show hospitality, uh, etc. I, as I get to sit in on many meetings around the country, uh, and I sit with leaders of major organizations, I sit with people who lead uh, like street-level teams, people who are doing research projects, they're all kind of asking the same question or questions, and it's questions like, how do we make our organization uh, more friendly to people from other ethnic backgrounds? How do we get more minorities mobilized for missions? Why is my organization so white? Why is my church so white? Uh, and so all of these questions are things that uh, people are kicking around, and I've got a really fun guest coming on the show today. Um, she and I, and all of our, our calls to set this up, you know, we typically chat for like a half hour just on interesting cultural tidbits that we're learning about, and so we're going to try to stay on point for the call, but she is uh, from uh, Southern California, and uh, that's, that's where she was born and raised. She is uh, Chinese-American, and she has three kids. Uh, she lives there with her, her husbands. They've, they've lived on uh, multiple continents together as they've served overseas. And she's doing a lot with uh, trauma care uh, in, I, I always want to say the Bay Area because San Diego uh, is, is a bay, uh, but it's, it's not the Bay Area. Anyway, um, but uh, if you want to hear my interview with her on all of those other issues, you can go check out the other podcast, uh, which is Medina Focus, and she's going to be the latest one. That episode actually drops today, and so you can go hear what she has to say about all of that. Uh, but she's had some very interesting projects related to everything I've just said about multi-ethnic teams, and so that's what we want to talk about today. So with all of that, Samantha, I'm so glad you're on the show today. Thank you. I'm very privilege to be here. So, you know, I've given this introduction uh, about you, and I, I've kind of hinted that there's an other side that relates to uh, trauma care and, and some of the ministry that's happening out there. Um, we also had Trevor's, pro, uh, Trevor's interview. We kind of, not simulcast, but sort of mirrored it on over here, and so people have, have probably heard about some of his translation projects. Um, so that's super interesting. But um, <laughs> You know, t tell me a little bit about sort of your own cultural heritage and background in terms of how you see yourself. I know a lot of people, uh, when they think of their own identity, this isn't such a, 
clear cut, I'm this or I'm that. A lot of times it goes through some kind of metamorphosis. So how, how do you see yourself in all of this? And has that gone through any kind of transformation over time? Yeah, this is a, this is a deep question. Um, I, you know, as was said, I was, you know, born and raised here in Southern California. And um, I have, have grown up in an immigrant community. My parents were Chinese immigrants here um, for university and they settled down here in Southern California um, after a meeting and um, falling in love in the Pacific Northwest. And they've raised their, they raised their family here. And I would say that I didn't I think growing up, I, you know, we were in a, a neighborhood in an area of San Diego that was predominantly white and Latino. And I didn't, besides family, and then later, our Chinese church, I didn't really have a sense of where I fit in, you know, and um, I, upon reflecting on it later, you know, it's like, I got bullied as a child by kids you know, who were like, go back to where you came from. And, you know, like would do the pulling back their eyes thing and making fun of me. Mm. And, um, you know, just general, I think there's just general shaming of things. I, I had the classic, those pivotal classic, you know, moments as a child that where, you know, it's a rainy day and I bring in a thermos of like fried rice and, all the kids like around me and I'm like so excited to dig into it because it's warmth, it's home, <clears throat> it's family and it's comfort food. Yeah. It's comfort food. And then the kids around me are like, Oh, what is that smell? Like, what is that disgusting thing you're eating? And <laughs> having it be so confusing, mm. right. To have like this thing that, that, um, ties to family and warmth and, um, home then be derided, you know, in public and, and feeling the sense of shame for who you are and mm. not knowing what to do with that. And, or even, you know, even in media or, um, in school with teachers and just like these subtle messages that are always kind of like, this is normative beauty. This is normative behavior. Like Chinese people are weird or Chinese things are weird. Chinese smells are weird. You mm. know, having, I remember having really lovely, you know, like my, my childhood friends coming over to my house and being like, your house smells funny. And that sense of like otherness, because it's like, does my house smell funny? Like I've never, I've never thought noticed. of it that way. <laughs> yeah. Like, which, you know, and now as a, an adult, you're like, well, everyone else's, everyone's house smells funny, right? Like everyone's house smells like something, but to then have that sensitivity already where you're like, I don't want to be other, you know, like I want mm. to fit in. I wish my hair was blonde or brunette, you know, and I wish that I could make it do things that I can't, I can't make it do, you know, like, so I think there was such a sense of like, needing to make sure that I, you know, excelled at English and that I, you know, was, was fitting in was not signaling to anyone that I was different as much as humanly possible. Um, and then going to Chinese church eventually kind of in my preteen years and not liking that at first because it was small and it wasn't like as cool or hip as the white church that we had been going to. And they had like 
rock music for middle schoolers and stuff like that, which now I'm really glad we escaped from that because it's probably better for my ears long term. But but feeling also like a sense of home and community there that has stayed with me to this day. That some of the friends that I had from childhood in those days have been maintained as like some of my closest friends, friends that feel like I've I've thought of it as they were my extended family when as immigrant children, we didn't have a lot of extended family around, you know, it's like all of our extended family was always really far away. And so our church family, our Chinese American community there became this extended family, Mm -hmm. but then also wrestling so much with my cultural identity as being like, am I, I'm, am I Chinese? I mean, I am Chinese. I'm definitely Chinese. I look in the mirror, there I am. I'm Chinese, but then I'm also American. And and my face doesn't signal that, you know, or at least to me, it doesn't signal that now knowing more about <laughs> Asians and Asian culture, you know, and even talking to my mom at one point and having her be like, you know, if you were to go to China, you wouldn't fit in like they would immediately know you didn't belong. You know, wow. like she's like, she's like, even I, you know, like going to China felt like, oh, like the way I hold myself, mm-hmm. having been right. in America for so long, makes me look different, you know, to to Chinese and like, I don't, you know, carry myself the same way. And yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I'll say like, I didn't visit China until I was in my twenties. And it was really, um, I mean, I have a more like what I would consider like a very standard American body type, um, an American woman body type. And so I went over to Asia, you know, and, um, we were in these like markets where they're selling clothes and selling stuff. And I would walk into like a booth that was selling women's clothing and they just waved me out. Like, no, no, we have, wow. we have nothing for someone as big as you, you know, <laughs> and like, kind of like keep, keep walking, you know? And I was like, well, I, I can't just look like, they're like, no, <laughs> like it's just no, you know? Um, wow. And so, you know, having this sense of like, okay, I know that if I go to China, I'm not going to fit in, you know, but then here in America, then where I'm, I've been born and raised. I don't also have a sense of like, fitting in, even though I was like, Oh, you know, according to birthright citizenship, I am a citizen, I do belong, I am an American, Mm -hmm. you know, I have the papers, you know, like that kind of thing. But but then do other Americans see me as American and really struggling with that in my teen years to where, you know, I had a friend who was like, what is your problem? Like, why are you struggling so much with this? Like we're Chinese American, like we're in between, you know? And I think it's interesting because different people develop their own things about this, you know, but I ended up going to um, a, like a secular university here in California that was 40 something percent Asian at that time. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, whatever that's going to be like. And I go there and I was so confused for a while. I'd walk around and I was sort of used to anytime I, I saw an Asian typically in my life before then I knew them because they were a friend at church or, you know, like my family. And so all of a sudden being in this place where I'm like an Asian. So someone I know, Oh wait, no, I don't know them. Like, and I don't know them and being confused. Cause I was like, this is so weird because there's so many Asians here and I don't know them. And it's so normal to be that like it, it, and, 
And um, I joined an Asian American Christian fellowship there that then was like a huge training ground for me. And, and what I still consider my most jarring cross-cultural experience that I had much more culture shock going to college with a bunch of Asian Americans and serving in a fellowship with them and learning that people navigated their cultural identity so differently than mine, mm-hmm. you know, um, having, right. having classmates who grew up in Chinatown and had a very strong sense of their Chinese-ness, you know, um, and kind of like running the full gamut, you know, and I had, you know, we had jokingly called ourselves like Twinkies, like the, you know, yellow on the outside, one on the inside. And, <laughs> I've never heard and that. also like having it be like a point of pride, right? Cause yeah. it was like, I can pass, like, as I, I can fit in like that. That's, that's, that time, that's so interesting. Yeah. So at that time, if, if, and when white friends of mine, like in high school or whatever might say, oh, I don't even think of you as Asian. I would be like, yes, I did it. You know, like I, <laughs> Mission accomplished. you know, um, but then being in, in school with all these people and I, I ended up flipping the entire, like the other direction in that. Whereas when I was in high school, most of my friends at school or whatever were white. And then I had, you know, a few Asian friends at school maybe and um, black friends or Latino friends like then. um, And then all my church friends that were Chinese mostly or, or Asian American of some sort to like being in college where I by the end of college, I started having dreams where I would dream like of wishing that I had a white, a white friend or something or something because I just only had Asian, Asian friends. And, um, and that being so formative for me because I started to like love and want to accept this, this bicultural identity as something that I had been gifted with instead of like a curse that I had to hide, right? you know? And, um, and shed and, and, and being so sad, right? Like, I I think there was always this deep sadness to losing, um, losing touch with like Chinese language. And, um, you know, so my parents spoke to me exclusively in Cantonese until I got to school and then just dropped me in to, you know, English speaking preschool kindergarten where I just had to learn it. Um, and so that, Cantonese was my first language and then to get to college and, you know, have a classmate who I love and, you know, we're still friends and, um, she, she grew up in a, in a border town where there was a large Chinese population there and she grew up totally trilingual in English, Spanish and Cantonese and being just like really amazed, you know, and, and she was like, why does not does not everybody (laughs) like know all these like how come you know and and you know being able to joke on the regular with people in multiple languages and you know code switch between English and Cantonese and have these different jokes and have people tell me about their traditions with their family with pride you know um where I was like yeah we did some stuff but not really you know um (laughs) and eating foods I'd never eaten and exploring things and, and then being, you know, in an Asian American fellowship where, um, 
I was told at one point, like I was on, on the leadership team, I was, I was a sophomore and I was pulled aside by, you know, the, the head person in our student leadership group to say, Hey, you're a little bit too direct for everybody here. Like on our team, when you say stuff, you just, you're not able to massage it or talk indirectly about things in a way that is acceptable to us. You know, we really, we feel like you're coming across a little too white, you know? And I was like, yeah. And, and, and I think feeling like, you know, for so long, I had been too Chinese to be white, you know, or too Chinese to be American. And then now I was too white or too white American to be, to be, to fit in with Asians and having to learn like a whole different cultural way of being appropriate and talking and, um, communicating and listening and recognizing now, you know, having studied more about culture, the difference between high context and low low context cultures where there's a lot more subtleties, there's a lot Mm -hmm. more indirect communication. Um, Yeah. And that's one of the big East West divides (laughs) is how we view communication being direct and indirect. And, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you you know, you, you, uh, you hit on something earlier about being in, in school and bringing your lunch on a rainy day, and right, everybody's got that rainy day dish. Um, and so at the time, you said it was fried rice. What is your kind of go-to comfort food now? Because, I mean, you've you've lived all over the place, and I'm sure in your adult life you've experienced many different cultures, many different foods. So now what is your uh, go-to comfort food? <laughs> I I think there's a bunch of Chinese dishes that are still that, go-to comfort. I mean, of course, like, you know, in thinking about different places that I lived, I'm like, oh, I really <laughs> want to eat this, you know, like, I realized, you know, for for us living in South Asia, I developed a love for lamb mm. because of the the context that that was, you know, like, of the different meats of choice that were available. Lamb was something that I was exposed to that I really loved and like a good biryani, you know. Um, had you, had you not eaten lamb growing up? Not really. No. Really? Interesting. Do you eat lamb? Oh, well, I, but I, I grew up in Scotland and (laughs) so lamb there was cheaper than chicken. And so we developed a taste for lamb in my childhood. And then we came to to the States where lamb is crazy expensive. Fortunately, Houston is diverse enough and we have enough, uh, South Asians, East Asians, uh, it's like a lot of Western Chinese dishes have lamb in them, a lot of Middle Eastern dishes. And so now there's a pretty good market for it here. So let's, let's kind of come into your, you know, your, your contemporary time. So all of this Mm -hmm. is your childhood of, you know, either sticking out or fitting in. And and you mentioned being a a Twinkie, uh, and, and, and that being a good thing. Is that the term? (laughs) I'm like trying to remember what the exact metaphor now, that's like what I'm thinking right now, but maybe that wasn't the, anyway. So. I mean, it sounds like at different points in different times, you know, being more Chinese or being more white, if you will, white cultured, uh, was the advantageous position or the, just the ability to switch. But now, you know, working for, we'll call it a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure this is not your first one or your only one, maybe. Um, but, you know, with the push for diversity now, do you feel um, your identity, your uh ethnicity is a helpful thing for you is is it does this make you more unique and interesting to 
people or is this uh, is this still something you feel like you're sort of fighting for recognition with <laughs> um i don't think of it as an advantage or disadvantage in some some sort of way like that as much as it's just it it is who i am that i have had this upbringing that is bicultural and and i think from a lot of navigating all of this you know into adulthood and and a lot of reflection and a lot of you, you know research into culture and things like that i i recognize that it i recognize that it poises me to to understand that the the two cultures that that have built me or that are what primarily make up who i am are in many ways polar opposites and so that that helps me to see things from very different perspectives because i've had to try to navigate these different cultural spaces um and that in a certain way i i don't totally fit in in either place but then i also can fit in better or can have at least an appreciation for or recognition for different perspectives and points of view that whereas someone who might be from one primary culture might have more of a place of well this is kind of normal this is the norm this is the mm -hmm. regular this is the how it should be and for me how it should be can take different forms you know and that then in that recognition i recognize that that it could also be more than even what I experience or what I find comfortable because I recognize that, you know, the way that God has made people, there's so many different um, kind of iterations or ways that he has made like a cultural norm, you know? And, yeah. and so I don't know, I feel, cause I feel like the question that you're asking is sort of almost like, does this give me some advantage because people can see me then as like an asset because of this. And I mean, I think people can see that however they want. Um, I, I recognize, right. So being married to Trevor, that there are times that there's things he says that because of people's own bias, that they're going to find him more credible or someone more believe more believable, more, um, based more on, instantly based, on, based what? on, based on him and everything that he is right. Like him being male, him being, you know, him looking the way that he does like that, that he is like a white male American, you know, like that right. he will be able to have a certain, um, credibility because of that. And, and not necessarily because of that, like that forms his credibility, but that people have biases towards that, right, that will be a certain way. And I've also learned from my own life experience and from plenty of research that <laughs> backs me up, you know, to say that then the person that I am and the identity that people see me as and recognize in me will cause them to find what I have to say, um, credible or not credible or like, uh, we don't know if we believe her or trust her or whatever, because of these perceptions that they have, because of their own set of biases, because of what they take to it. You know, I, I think it's, it's interesting because I've come across, you know, 
like plenty of like assumptions about what I should be like and behave because of what I look like, because of what people perceive or assume that my cultural background is and then culturally how I should behave, you Mm -hmm. know, and that is, that is often more of a reflection on how much experience they have had with other people that look and, and are from backgrounds like mine, um, then, then maybe even me and my (laughs) whatever, you know, like whether or not, I am credible or not, you know, it's, it's a reflection on how much they are willing to respect that or or how much experience that they have had themselves and their expectation then of how I should behave. And so I, so in all that, I'd say that there's, there's things that Trevor can speak into that I can't as effectively speak into, not because we, you know, we have some vastly different experiences or perspectives, but just by way of who he is identity wise, you know? Um, yeah. And, and think, there's also certain places where I can speak into, I think. I, I think a lot of people don't really understand that and they think, Oh, this is all just modern, uh, you right. know, critical race theory. And it's, it's really not. Um, right. if, if you just look, I mean, if you go on an international trip and watch how people respond to people, I feel awkward because I have a very low power distance. So when people start giving me what I view to be undue honor, uh, mm. I feel really out of place of, of why on earth are you putting me, in this position right. of honor, but there, there is this sense because the history of, you know, cross-cultural work in our field, uh, has largely been dominated by Euro Americans who are white, um, mm. which there's nothing wrong with that. God, God called them and they followed and that's, that's great. But right. that's also set a precedence that's now as, you know, Samuel Escobar talks about, you know, the gospel from everywhere to everywhere, which I think is really mm-hmm. where we're currently at or, or like right on the cusp of being. Um, we've, we've got to get beyond that where there's not just the assumption that, uh, Evelyn and I, we were talking, uh, I think in last week's podcast about, um, one of the things that Latinos feel is this, this sort of unspoken question in the room is who's going to pay, uh, and then power creates right. money. And I think in a lot of cultures, there's kind of a, a, a patronage system, um, a, a patron client system where right. Right. the one who has the money is responsible for what happens, but also has the greater, is the greater party, if you will. And Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the challenges is that Americans are typically unaware that this is the system, are unaware that they are perceived this way and that this is the expectation. And because some of the monies that we're asked for or things we're asked to do seem so to us trivial, and maybe that's based on how much we have, that it seems like a trivial amount, that we're not aware of all of the stuff that comes attached with that. Right. Um, that it, because it, it communicates something right. greater than just that exchange of, of money. Right. And, and one of the things that comes with that is the right uh, to, to not just to speak, but to be the decider, which we right. think, oh, I'm just sharing my opinion, which is a very American thing to do. Mm-hmm. And in reality, everyone else in the room heard us say, well, here's what's going to happen. Yeah, this is how it's going to be, and, and this is how I want it. And we don't understand that that's connected to that what we viewed to be a tiny gift or a tiny gesture that we made way back over here now is coming into play uh, in the sense that whether we want to or not, we're being put in the boss chair, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are starting to recognize this and, and don't want this. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about your own, uh, your own journey into cross-cultural work. Um, I've, I find that this is an interesting thing to talk about with people who are coming from a family that has recently immigrated, but 
uh, you mentioned going to a secular school. And uh, what did you study at the school, by the way? I studied psychology, like social psychology. Okay. Hmm? Um, So I assume your parents had some expectations on what that would turn into. And maybe that's an assumption. You can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Um, but then, how, what was the family perception when you said, "You know what? I'm going to be a cross cultural worker." Um, was that a challenge for you and your family? Uh, was this something they readily understood? What What did that look like? Yeah. So um, my parents are, you know, first generation immigrants to here to this country, but then they are also the first Christians in their family. And yeah. And so I think they were very groundbreaking in, in the pace that they were setting for their family, you know, and they always prioritized our faith and living out our faith and um, following God as a higher priority than some sort of human, you know, accolades and things like that. And I I think they were very countercultural in that they didn't, have like strong pressures on me and my siblings to become doctors or lawyers or things like that. Um, But it was certainly a challenge for them when I said, Hey, you know, I I think God is calling me to be, be in this, this work. Right. And, um, or to give my whole life to, you know, like overseas work. And, and I think part of that was that they are, my parents that have seen me since I was a child, you know, and know, know, knew all these, like all the strengths and weaknesses to mm-hmm. who I am. And they were sort of like, why do you think that you're like <laughs> fit to do this? Like, and I, I think there was, there was a very real fear right. in, in certain senses that they knew a lot of people who had gone into full-time Christian service sure, sure. and they knew that it was extremely challenging and that it's, a spiritual battle, you know, even more than a physical one. And, and so on certain levels, they were sort of like, I don't, we don't know that you're like strong enough to go into this battle. (laughs) Like, you know, like we, we, you know, soberly as your parents don't think, you know, like that you're necessarily, you're not necessarily, you just are not the spiritual giant that we think should be the ones like, kind of like, we should be sending our best, you know, and like, I don't know that that's you, you know, and, and I mean, some of that is like a necessary Chinese modesty. It's like, you're never going to be like, yeah, my kid's the best, you know, like that's a very American mm. kind of sentiment, but um, not saying that they don't love me or they don't think highly of me, but just that they were like, we really know that you are this person that, you know, like is sort of sensitive and is, you know, this could be really tough for you. And, and I think for me, I wasn't saying I wasn't, you know, and, and I think, they recognized that I had a lot of idealism and I recognized that I had a, a lot of idealism, but maybe I didn't let them in enough into how much I had really considered it and how much I was, I had really wrestled with the Lord about it and how many years it was for me to, to be going this direction. But I mean, if there, their one expectation was, well, you got to go to college. You can't, you know, like you need to have an education and, so I went to college, didn't 
know what I was doing, got this social psychology degree, which, you know, people would say was useless, you know, and I've found in recent years, it to be extremely useful in understanding and thinking about systems and um, how people behave the way they do and what things in society cause them to behave certain ways that they do. Um, And so it was, it was a challenge. And I think I got really good advice when I was applying for my organization from the person that was working with me then was, you know, she said to me at that time, don't protect your parents from the harsh realities of like things that might happen. Or, you know, like we had to sign a form, you know, to say basically like if we were to die in whatever way, you know, we have to be left, be left there. Or, you know, like if we get kidnapped, there's not going to be any ransom money giving, you know, like that kind of like just real, like, nitty gritty gut check you you, you die there you stay there you know like that kind of stuff and they were like don't hide this from your parents like recognize that god is doing something in their hearts too because they are believers Mm. and try your best to not get in the way of what god is doing and so i think there was this whole letting go process for both of us of being like okay (laughs) i'm trusting you with my life and i'm trusting that you'll work with my parents to bring this to this place where they're ready to to send you off with, um, with, with love and support. And I think there's also for them, so for them, I, you know, I've always felt a deep respect in their process of, of having to let go of their, you know, oldest daughter and for them to, you know, taking really seriously their charge to protect me and care for me. And, you know, it's like you put all this into this child and then you're like, and I'm going to let them go where they can be harmed and I can't swoop in and, mm-hmm. and save them, you know, like th- that really required them to put, like kind of go to the next level of trust with God, right? Like to be like, okay, you can, you know, you might be willing to give your own life for Christ, but are you willing to give your child's life? You know, like that's, that's yeah. like a whole level, that's another question. level, right? As a parent, so, that's a tough question. Right. It is. It's really, it's really something. So, so I think, it it was, it was its own amazing thing to see, you know, God work in them. And it's been, it's been a challenge. I, I would say that this for Chinese Americans, so there used to be this, at least there used to be this Chinese um, Christian missions conference in Northern California that I went to a few times. And the key thing that held Chinese Americans, like second generation, or even 1.5 back, from going into um, like cross-cultural service in this way was that they were going to disappoint, be disowned by, be rejected by their parents who, you know, it was like, you know, all these immigrant parents and even previous generations or large extended family did everything they could to send and go into, go back into, you know, third world countries or, you know, difficult situations that everyone's trying to run away from. It just, that was definitely the hardest barrier. Um, For those who are non-Christian, it was really, really hard. And for those who are Christian, it was really, really hard. Yeah. Because of that. I imagine so. So one of the, the issues that I've, I've kind of hinted around both in the introduction and you've, you've heard some of the other episodes. uh, I, I love to get people's take on how is it, how can, how can organizations or churches or teams, you know, you can take your pick at any of those or all of those, uh, what are some things they can do to be a 
better, friendlier space uh, for multi-ethnic uh, teams. Um, I know that with your organization, you had been working on this class to uh, kind of teach exactly that, and I, I know that didn't happen, but uh, maybe you mm -hmm. can share with us some of your uh, discoveries and whatnot. So as you think through, you know, your own time and experience, and then, you know, you've, for, for however you've done it, you've crossed the chasm, if you will, into, uh, uh, you, you know, you were with a, a, I'll call it a regular organization. That's obviously my perspective of what is regular. Um, but you know, you were, you were not with a Chinese organization. And so, oh. <laughs> um, you are, uh, you know, you have crossed this chasm of an organization that probably wants to be more diverse. And I, and I know like every organization that I'm hearing from right now wants to be more diverse. And so what does that look like? How, how do we make that happen more? Yeah. So it's interesting because you used the word regular. I was like, what, what are you getting at here? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Cause what you're basically bringing up is, you know, for, for at least for American based organizations or North American based organizations because the culture is predominantly white right. then a lot of these these nonprofits and these organizations that we are speaking of yes absolutely are also predominantly white you know and and i mean of course it's funny because there are certainly organizations that are um minority led that then for them it's like a totally different question they don't have the same you know questions of are we being inclusive to, you know, whatever? Cause they're like, we are, you know, like, yeah, we, that's right. We are started by, um, and so for organizations that are more historically white and pr the predominant culture or the dominant culture, predominantly the dominant culture, um, and especially those that do have this longer history where their organization, you know, culture has been set over, you know, like generations of, of staff and members, right? Um, then to, tr to have the shift to say, hey, we recognize that the demographics of North America, the demographics of even the makeup of the Christian church in North America is shifting, is, has shifted, is continuing to shift, right? And so in that is there a way for us to include more of and recognize the strengths of churches from minority backgrounds and draw membership and strength and those cultural strengths from these places um, and spiritual strength as well, you know? And, okay. So one of my big things, and this isn't maybe for the class is that diversity needs to be dealt with beyond mobilization. You know, I, I, we, we worked in mobilization for, for our organization for a term, which we were really passionate about because we love the work that we're in and we wanted other people to join that. And for me in particular, I always, I, I, I would say I started out thinking, why are there not more bicultural people like me, more Asian Americans like me, say, not in this work? And I always thought it was just a lack of exposure. Like if they only knew yeah. that this work was around, this would fit so many of the gifting strengths and, um, you know, like academic um, 
leanings of so many people that I know, you know, and so many churches that I know. So, so mobilization, as you're saying, you're saying this would be more, how would people, how would, how would an organization get people in the door right. to kind of just become members of whatever it is that they do? And you're saying it has yes. to go beyond that. So right. So beyond it, that, how? Because so I think a lot of I've places see, haven't well, even so figured say, that part out. Right. So I would say there's a lot of talk on thinking like the problem is like they don't there. There's all these churches that just don't know. You know, it's like I did. And I did note this. Right. Is like when I would share with. Like Asian, more Asian background churches or Chinese churches or, you know, talk to people in the Korean church or wherever they didn't. They had a lot of people did not know about my organization, which is a very established organization. But yet when I went to you know, a rural, small church in the Midwest, that was why, you know, they, they did, they was a very well known thing. So, so for me, I was like, Oh, it's just, they don't know. Like, you know, it's like, it's just that the way that these, you know, predominantly immigrant churches, they just don't know about all of these big orgs, you know, (laughs) that are doing things already. Um, But I've come to really feel convinced that it has to go beyond, beyond just efforts and mobilization, you can't just think, how do you get get people in the door? How do we communicate effectively, or even cross culturally to these different churches, like if if people even think cross culturally, because there's the whole first step of like, oh, we should, we should ask not just these churches, but also include these churches, and then being like, oh, but in talking to these churches, we don't know how to talk to these churches, you know, like, so there's the whole cross cultural aspect of how do you even Mm -hmm. How do you even do mobilization in um, minority church situations that come from different cultural backgrounds? There's sometimes language barriers. There's certainly different cultural mindsets. So a lot of times people are like, we don't even know how to talk. Is there a video we can give them in another language? You know, like, um, but I think, okay, great. So say you were able to do that. Say you were able to effectively cross-culturally speak to these different churches and draw membership from all these there seems to be this thought that the foregone conclusion is then you have this beautiful diversity you bring into your organization and that magically makes you, um, you know, a really thriving, more diverse place. But years of what has happened shows us that that's not true, that that's not the case, right? Like that by and large, there's a lot of challenges once minority, ethnic minorities are in or racial minorities are in a predominantly white or, you know, predominantly something space that they don't feel, they don't feel that they fit or they don't feel that they are being listened to, you know, and. um, So what are, what are some of the things that make minorities feel that sense of uh, not discomfort, but just feeling out of sync with, um, I'm not part of this sort of, understood shorthand that everybody else seems to be in on I'm over here. What are some of those things that make them feel that way? Yeah. Well, I'll say this too, right? Like in any space, there's some sort of culture, right? Like there's in any organization, any church and any, in any team, there's some sort of group culture that exists. And so when you have a lot of, of kind of people from a certain similar background, they have a lot of shared culture that they just bring to that group. And if you, you know, depending on the savvy of the leader and where they come from too, they might just lead in into that 
predominant, you know, that dominant culture and be like, well, this is normative. And so if you have a situation where you are wanting to work cross-culturally, but your team or your organization is is predominantly from this one cultural background, it can be very, very easy to just, just fall into this is normative. And, and especially in countries, maybe like the US that doesn't have a lot of um, self-awareness, maybe, I don't know how to say it, like, I don't want to say it in a negative way, but it's like, because of this feeling of dominance in the world or whatever, often United States culture can be such that they're like, we are the best. We have this assumption that we're the best and that we know better and we know what we're doing. And, but then also kind of like, they don't think of it as like in opposition to other people. They just feel very proud of their culture, which is good acculturation. Like, I don't think that's bad. Like, I think cultures tend to be like, we've learned the best way how to do things, you know, like in whatever context we're in. And we're proud of that. But if you, if you do think of it as like, then American culture is not, it's not the only one, you know, like it's not the only game in town. And you're saying, Hey, we want to effectively reach into all these other places. You have to really start to recognize what is the culture that we bring to the table? You know, we're not devoid of culture where everyone else has culture and they, you know, like we have normal and everybody else is different. Um, And so that especially comes into play when you have a minority fitting into this organizational culture. And I would say in a lot of senses that might not matter, like in that you're like, okay, well, it makes sense to speak to the dominant culture or to have things be normative to a dominant culture that makes things easier. Here's the thing. But I think there's a high responsibility for those who are wanting to do cross-cultural work effectively and say, especially when they're saying we want to know, we want to be a light for the world, you know, in an incarnational way to show through our love, to show through our, our actions and behaviors, and even our way that we relate to one another, a different way, a Christ-like way, one that where Christ, you know, incarnationally came down on earth. Um, and we want to do that in other places, in other contexts and cultures, then how do we then even relate to each other as, as teams, as, as group cultures? in a way that honors different people and then negotiates a new group culture that is more, more recognizing of, or more um, one that's a negotiated culture. So I think of it, so I think of it as any group culture that has more than one cultural background is basically creating a third culture. Um, And so if you want it to be a space where a minority or people from different cultural backgrounds feel like they really fit in, they have to feel like they have some say as to how that culture is formed and, and what, what things get to be. But if it's just assumed that those who are minorities just have to fit in with dominant culture, and they just have to take what dominant culture says is the values or is the priorities is the way of doing things. It can be very challenging because minorities can quickly feel as though they look good on the brochure. They, you know, it's like fantastic to say, hey, unity is this forced sense of like, we are all doing what the dominant culture is saying. But look, we're all of different faces. And that's diversity, right? Like, so I think this is a common, yeah, like com- complaint or distress, right? Yeah. Is And I think that goes that. to what you're saying of there's, we've got to go deeper than mobilization. It's not just getting yeah. people through the doors. It's, it's how do we remake 
It's how do we remake our culture? Uh, the school that I teach at, uh, HBU here in Houston, Houston Baptist University, they are very, very diverse, and we have students from all walks of life. And uh, because I can, I typically require or will offer extra credit for students to come visit the church here. And I prep them before that it's multi-ethnic, and inevitably, in their their review of their experience, they'll say, this church was actually multi-ethnic. And I finally had to corner someone and go, why Why does everyone say it's actually multi-ethnic? <laughs> What's actually mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah why actually? And the actually is because they said, look, every institution, secular, Christian, educational, sports, media, it doesn't matter. They've got a face, like they've got a picture, just like you're talking about, all these smiling faces. And then when you go in, it's a bunch of this group or that group. And they said it's just unusual to, or they'll say it's just a marketing technique to people like us who are younger and who value diversity more. They are trying to, to, to kind of front this value um, mm-hmm. so on the, on the topic of what you're just saying, so you're just saying, um, you know, there's gotta be some negotiation in, um, in culture making. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, I'm very flat cultured. Uh, this is part of my Western, uh, culture is, you know, power distance is very low. I want people to right. speak in and then add into that my desire to hear voices from different ethnic backgrounds as I do teams here at my church or at school or whatever. But the problem that I've come into, and I want you to, I'm I, in your infinite wisdom, because you were going to teach it because you were going to teach a class <laughs> on this, <laughs> because you were going to teach a class on this. You've clearly figured this out. Uh, so I want you to help <laughs> me solve this problem. And that is, I, I keep hitting this issue where I want to hear the voice of someone else. And yet there's this push of their culture, and I don't know if this is – I imagine there's multitude of reasons as to whether it's from colonialism, uh, whether it's just they've finally been beaten, you know, like browbeaten into like, well, it looks like we're in this country and it's the dominant culture should be the one talking. Um, some of it might be some own kind of in, in their own camp, kind of some colorism involved where they themselves prefer people of lighter skin to be the newscasters or to be the actors or whatever. But it comes down to this where I will ask someone a question or ask someone to do something, and I realize like their expectation, rather than to allow their voice to be heard and collaboration, all that other stuff that I, I love to talk about, rather than that to be what they want, all they really want is for me, based on the title that I hold of being you know one of the pastors at the church, their expectation is that I do whatever it is we're talking about. And not do this whole culture sharing, culture negotiation. And so, on the one hand, I could be, I'm, I'm faced, I'm too self aware. Okay, right. So I could be faced with the issue of, <laughs> do I now commit the crime of cultural imperialism, where I say, no, you must have mm-hmm. diversity and flat culture as your uh, value, or do I actually practice submitting to someone else's culture by then taking the lead role in something? So easy question. (laughs) Totally. Like you've, you've just asked me the easiest little, no. So, you know, I think that it's real challenge what you're saying. And I think one thing you're, you are talking about is kind of like, what is my cultural expectation and how do I navigate that as it comes into play with someone on my same team that comes from a different cultural expectation, one where they might be expecting, you know, you to take the lead and, so one thing is that culture is so like iceberg, right? It's so under 
under, it's like so invisible. Right. But it drives everything that we do and our expectations and how we think. So one thing I would, I would recommend or what I, you know, would really like <laughs> is for, for teams to, to be able to present like a neutral view or like to dig in together to some cultural thing factors and say, Hey, here's some different cultural dynamics. Like you're saying like power distance or, um, or, you know, indirect versus direct speech or, you know, like hierarchy versus egalitarian, you know, structures and stuff like that. And just have everybody like, like I think of it as being investing in your team culture and investing time and even having everyone have a recognition of what cultures they're bringing when they come to the team, when they come to the situation and, and even to bring the invisible visible, right. To say, Hey, what are the assumptions? What are the value systems that we bring to this team? You know, that when we come to this team, what are we expecting of each other? And not just going, well, I think I kind of know that this person thinks this, but to even make them, um, make them spoken, right? Like to say, I think that it'd be, you know, like here, here's these different, you know, what is it called? Like these different places on this, you know, continuum, where is it that like from your cultural background, do people tend to think? And then where are you? Because if people are even willing to be on a multicultural team, they're probably like not really normative to their culture either. Like, oh, yeah. They're, they're someone who is already willing to play ball, right? That's but, a fantastic know, point. Right. To know, like, hey, from my, you know, predominantly American or Western view, I know that this is the value is that we have a really high time orientation, you know, like, and that is very strong. But because of my lack of time orientation, you know, it's like, because I as a human being myself, personally, am more event oriented, that is what kind of does draw me into thinking, oh, maybe working with other culture, you know, like, so just being able to plot, like, what is a cultural norm for maybe the cultural background you come from and what influences you to be like, this is the right way to be mm -hmm. that you might be not knowing that you're always striving towards kind of, or thinking as like, like really, if my tendency is to, to have like time orientation be a very strong value, even though I'm not like that, I still think that's the better way to be. So I'm gonna still brush against someone who has a completely much, much stronger event orientation. And I think it's really helpful to like, look at that. There's one book called Culture Map by Aaron Meyer. Um, that it's a business book about cross-cultural interaction, things like that. And so it's for the business community. And it doesn't have, you know, all cultures of the world, like, grievously, it doesn't have cultures from the African content con continent. Um, uh, like exemplified there, but, oh wow, but it, but it has a really good way of saying, you know, like plot, what is the ideal in your cultural background and then plot where you are. And then also then see how that can depend, right? Like that you might, that, you know, like certain cultures might not be time oriented. Like it, it, there's often these broad strokes and broad generalizations to say like, oh, all these, these cultures are less time oriented, but then come compared to this culture, you know, it's like I had, we had this one colleague who was, who's German, who told me and my husband, you know, like we are, I forget which, which thing he was. He was like, we, 
we are this thing. We're individualistic, I think was what he said. But Americans are even more individualistic, like <laughs> so much more individualistic, you know? So he's like, yeah, like as, as a German, you know, from my German background, we are individualistic. We would fall in the, we are individualistic, but it's not just a two-sided, you know, it's not just you're in one camp or another. Yes, you're on it, you know, true. on on these gradients. So then compared to a more individualistic culture, you seem collectivist. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. And so, so recognizing that there's these gradients and to say, where do we fall? And then where do we want to fall? Like together as a team, what are going to be our values? And then how does, and then even taking from those invisible things. Now, how does that play out in real life? Mm -hmm. What does this mean? Right. If someone's late to a meeting, what does that mean? Like, how are we responding? What do we feel inside? You know, do we feel disrespected now because someone has come late to a meeting? Mm. Do we feel disrespected because people have started a meeting without us because they started on time and we weren't there and we were like, we're supposed to be there. Like a meeting doesn't start till we're all there. So you're disrespecting me because I have this value of event and person orientation. And so I think it's, it's in getting it down to the nitty gritty because it's the nitty gritty real rubber meets the road places where we get offended, right? <laughs> and where we then say, and also like one thing that I would suggest is that teams um, like budget in their minds for this time of like norming and storming and, you know, like that whole, like that they, they budget time and attention and resources towards this cultural negotiation and that it's more than just like, yeah, we care about this, but you actually invest time, that you actually take, like make special meetings to talk about this, that you invest in resources to have other people come in and, you know, show you these different things and like work together with your group to figure it out. Like put, you know, like put your money where your mouth is, right? And like actually invest that and allow for your team to, to, to budget emotional energy towards that as well. Because I think so many teams just go into things going, because we all love Jesus, we're going to get along, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the love of Jesus is going to overwhelm any cultural differences, right? Because he's going to be our thing. But what that often defaults to is that the dominant culture then gets its way. Mm. Um, because we're not actually going to talk about it, we're not budgeting anything. And if there's a problem, it tends to be then the minority is the problem, because they're the ones that are like, breaking the kind norm. of, yeah, yeah, beating to their own drum, or like, or making a fuss by bringing something up because you're like, I don't have time for a fuss. We didn't make any allowance for that. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, well, you should expect that if you're going to work together and work towards at least that kind of equity, not one that says power distance now doesn't exist, you know, but one where you're willing to take the time to say, where are we coming from and what mm -hmm. would make you comfortable and how much do we need to invest in this? And whatever you think you should invest in it, double that, you know, like, because it's going to be a lot messier than you think. And to even budget for that is to recognize that it being messy, people feeling uncomfortable, people feeling challenged, um, isn't bad, you know, being able to be ready for the discomfort and ready for it to even hurt, you know, and that you're willing to tough it out and say, like, I think the true thing to unity is not necessarily that we all get along and we feel good that we all have agreed really fast, but that you're willing to commit to when it gets hard, you're still going to push in yeah, that's and right. keep, keep talking and get to a point where 
not just one party's happy, but you know, everybody's at a, place, at a good place, you know, so. And, and I think we know that experientially in human relationships where it's not based on, you know, everyone thinks a good marriage is one where you don't fight until you get married and you realize like, oh, everybody fights, you know, I, like my view that I was never going to fight is, is, you know, naive at best. Um, and then you realize like healthy marriages are, are ones where you learn how to fight in a good way, in a productive way, right. and then come to some kind of productive conclusion. But I, right. I, I think what you're saying about, you know, it's these deeper issues that are really where the unity or disunity oftentimes are hammered out is so true. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a part of any kind of denominational church, uh, so the church where I'm at, you know, we're Southern Baptist, so we have a, a, a confession of faith, if you will. It's not our own churches, but it's, it's across the denomination. We subscribe to this uh, statement of faith. And I remember early on in ministry days, I would find people that I wanted to work with. And that was kind of my question of like, oh, do you subscribe to this or not? And they would say, yes. I'm like, oh, great. We're on the same page. Cool. We can work together right. without realizing there's so much to ministry philosophy. There's so many ways to do any particular thing. And, and it's sort of like an, a smell in the room, right? It, it's, and when it's off, it just smell, it just stinks. And so everybody's got their own, you, you mentioned this about homes, everybody's got their own smell. Right. And it's so true, we do. And so I, I've seen what you're talking about on, on multi-ethnic teams as well, where there's this idea of, oh, the love of Christ unites us. It does. It gives us the basis for forgiveness and for grace and for all these other things that are going to help us through all the dis, distant uh, differences and disagreements that we uh, have to struggle through and so I, I think that's uh, something really important that you that you brought up okay I know I say this to a lot of my guests where I could talk with you all day but uh, we really could and there's so many issues we might just have to do a part two to this to get into some of those other issues uh, but I'm really glad that you came on the show today and I certainly learned a lot as usual when I chat with you so thank you yeah thank you for having me Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nations.